The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, one of the more complex aspects of the China-Africa relationship is the migratory issue. Right now, we think there are somewhere around 750,000 to a million Chinese migrants who live in Africa. Now, this is a number that is highly imprecise. Nobody really knows for sure. Everybody wants to have a number. We've seen numbers go as high as 2 million. Uh, But over the past few years, what researchers are thinking and saying is that that number has been going down, uh, particularly as economies have been slowing in some parts of the world. But right now, we know for a fact that there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese migrants who live in Africa. And that brings opportunities, but it also brings challenges. And one of the the areas that we're going to look at today in the show is what is the impact in the trading space, in the business space? Now, this is very, very complicated because while at the same time, the arrival of Chinese migrants brings new competition for local producers – So the China price, the dreaded China price, which is we've heard so much about this, that the Chinese are able to manufacture things and make things at below market prices or at absurdly low prices and then sell them on the market. And local producers simply cannot compete. That puts pressure on employment, on the economy as a whole. But at the same time, the flip side of that is that it also provides people who have limited disposable income with additional buying power. So, Kobus, this is one of those things that we're going to look at today where it's not as simple as a lot of outsiders looking in often make it out to be. And oftentimes the Chinese are made to be the villains here because they are bringing in low quality, low price goods. But we don't always look at some of the benefits that migrants bring. Yes, it's it's a very complicated issue and it, it becomes kind of shaded depending on f- from which perspective you look at it. So um, you frequently critics of China tend to immediately, you know, con- take the side of, of people who complain, especially local traders who complain about being undercut by the prices. However, they frequently don't point out that in a lot of places, for example, in West Africa, in the past, those positions of of trading in the market weren't necessarily always occupied by locals. Sometimes they were also Lebanese or, you know, Africans from other other African countries. And so the, the idea of this job used to be done by locals and now they've been undercut by these Chinese who are moving in, that is a very oversimplified account of the situation. Well, let's go to West Africa. And in particular, we're going to focus on Ghana and one particular situation there. So we can maybe draw some some lessons and some examples out of what's happening in Accra and see if it applies to the rest of the continent. And for that, there was a very interesting paper that came out earlier this year, Chinese Entrepreneurial Migrants in Ghana, Socioeconomic Impacts and Ghanaian Trader Attitudes. Now, this was a hardcore academic paper. It was published in the journal of Modern African Studies by Kweku Dankwa, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Adelaide in Australia. 
and he has stayed up very, very late to join us on the podcast. Kwaku, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, and thanks for having me too. It's uh, now. I should also point out that you co-wrote that article with Marco Valenta from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. I want to make sure that all the credit is given to everybody who participated. It was a very, very interesting paper, and it really challenged a lot of the beliefs that I had, because again, for a lot of outsiders looking in, it's often framed in very binary terms. It's good or it's bad. Most outsiders tend to think that it's bad, uh, but you actually document that it's a lot more complicated uh, in Ghana you spent 10 years, if I understand, kind of working on this. Uh, it was a long time, and in, in the field work was done in four suburbs around the central business district in Accra. Tell us a little bit about the complexity of the situation and what you found in terms of the positives and the negatives of Chinese traders who were present in central business district of Accra. Yeah, so even uh, the simplicity you mentioned, I mean, from the outsider's view, was even quite prevalent in the literature prior to our study. And I mean, where they described, I mean, it's uh, in terms of the impacts, whether it's either good or bad, and even in terms of the relationships as to it being either complementary, collaborative, or purely competitive. But uh, what we we found, or what our study actually shows, that it's it's much more than being good or bad. It's both. And then depending on the position of the Ghanaian or the African trader or the trader in the host community, I mean, the impact of the Chinese presence could be good or could be bad. And uh, so the Chinese presence complicates uh, the relationships. I mean, uh, like Kobu said, I mean, they are now in positions that used to be occupied by Lebanese, Indians, or depending on which African uh, other African countries we're talking about. So in, some, in, in terms of some of the positives, the indirect jobs. So now, like Kobus mentioned, people with low disposable income who ordinarily will not be able to buy goods are now able to because the Chinese merchants come in with cheaper goods. So it, it not only increases the ordinary Africans' purchasing power, but then it creates these indi indirect jobs for poor African, mostly women for the Ghanaian cases, who sometimes team up and contribute money and then I mean, maybe secure like two or three boxes of maybe shoes or clothing from the Chinese merchants and then sell right within the trading spaces that have been made busy due to the Chinese presence. So the cheaper Chinese goods for the consumer, it increases his or her purchasing power but for other other poor Africans, it also it also creates a jo job opportunities for them. So now they they are able to I mean have some form of income. So you mentioned that um, that the the opinions about the. the the presence of the Chinese vary according to the position of the particular Ghanaian person you're speaking with. Can you unpack that for us a little bit and like give us some examples of which kinds of positions would make people more negative or less negative towards the Chinese? Yeah, so I would, I would start with two broad categories of Ghanaian traders based on their level of capital. So you have those with big capital who ordinarily perhaps without a Chinese influx or without Chinese capital trooping into Accra, would be able to go to China and buy the goods themselves. And you have those that cannot afford to go to China to buy the goods from. So those that cannot afford, ideally, will be happy with the Chinese presence because now the goods that, that uh, I mean, 
ordinarily they wouldn't be able to afford without a Chinese presence. Now they have access to those goods from the Chinese merchants and will be able to also buy from them and sell right within Accra. For the big capital traders, the Chinese are disrupting their trading patterns because these, I mean, like you mentioned, I mean, you said it's been oversimplified, saying that sometimes it's only Africans who go to China to buy. I mean, the Chinese are displacing Africans, but sometimes it's also involved with um, Lebanese and Indians. But I, uh, truly, there have been, I mean, the Chinese are now in positions that used to be occupied by some West Africans. So for the big capital traders who used to import products from China, not even only from China, but from Thailand, from some Asian countries or other European countries, now the Chinese merchants coming in with the same goods at cheaper prices, obviously distorts their trading patterns and they, they are not happy with that because they can't compete with the financial muscles of the Chinese merchants because the Chinese are able to bring their goods in larger quantities so they are able to sell cheaply. So for the big capital holder, they are not happy with the Chinese presence because they are unable to compete with them. But for the for the uh, Ghanaians with less capital who cannot afford to buy more goods from China, I mean, now they have access to the goods, I mean, right in Ghana. And and this the, the complication arrives now due to the fact that the big capital trader ordinarily would have, would have I mean, had a, the small capital holder as a customer. But now because of the Chinese presence, the Ghanaian big capital holders are unable still to buy in large quantities from China and then again have to compete with the Chinese for the small capital holders. Yeah, it's interesting because let's talk a little bit more about how the presence of the Chinese traders are distorting the market and changing some of the traditional you know, roles that business played in places like Ghana. You interviewed a footwear trader and the quote you have here is from Zongo Lane. I want to read it. And this is a quote from the trader. He said, even we buy some of the items from the Chinese on credit before we are able to sell and make some income. What is worrying is the Chinese are supposed to be wholesalers and we are supposed to be retailers. But if you dig deeper, you will find out that they retail just like us. So it's interesting that these Chinese traders are playing both sides of the game. They're bringing in the stuff and playing the wholesale role. They'll sell some to retailers, but then they will turn around and also compete against those retailers. And it seems like that's a very new dynamic in the in the marketplace where the wholesaler and the retailer are the same entity. So then it's uh, this insight draws back onto the category of, I mean, big capital, small capital. So then the Chinese, apart from competing with those who ordinarily would have been able to get the goods from China, I mean, are now also competing with the customers of the same big capital holders. And then after selling the goods at the same price to the wholesalers and the retailers, sometimes, according to some of the interviews, even the ordinary customer can just walk into the Chinese and buy just a pair of shoes, for instance. But for the proud to the Chinese influence, or conventionally, what is mostly done in the market is that you have the big capital holders or the people, importers or wholesalers, do not sell to the ordinary customers. So they, they tag, their target, their target uh, group is only the retailers who will then also resell to ordinary I mean, um, patronizers, people who are patronizing a pair of shoes or something. Um, so how are, the, how are the Ghanaian shopkeepers 
adapting to this new this new Chinese competition? Do you see, for example, like are, are they changing designs? Are they focusing on on you know kind of branding products as being made locally or made in Africa? Um, or what are some of their strategies to try and adapt? So uh, there are a number of strategies. The easy way out was for those who, I mean, those who used to import from China and other countries just had to just stop their importing. And then we're buying from the Chinese themselves. And then maybe through perhaps the union, the Ghana Union of Traders Association, pushing for the government to be a little bit more strict in the trading areas in terms of restricting the Chinese and other foreigners on how they trade. The, another strategy is for some people to also open shops in areas where the Chinese are not concentrated. So in areas in Ghana where you don't have huge Chinese, I mean, merchant population, because in those areas, then you don't, you, I mean, you can able to, you'll be able to sell to other people because you don't have the Chinese presence and um, the prices of those goods will not be as cheap as you go to the communities where the prices are very cheap. And then the other strategy, like you mentioned, where the, these customers try to advertise their products as much as possible to let their customers know that these are not Chinese products. Because then the question of the quality of the Chinese products also comes into play. And the reason why most of them know they are cheap is because they are inferior in quality. So these people try to I mean, sell cheap, inferior goods and go for just top brands, quality brands. So those are the three strategies. One, just go the Chinese way out, stop importing and just buy from the Chinese. The other is to open branches of shops in areas where you don't have, I mean, a huge Chinese population or you don't have a, a lot of Chinese merchants. And the other will be to restrict, I mean, yourself to quality products, which could also be coming from China. Because based on whoever is buying from China, whatever criteria you give, the Chinese companies will provide, will produce whatever you want for you. When I say the word Chinese trader or Chinese merchants in places like Ghana or Nairobi or Johannesburg, anywhere really, um, the immediate reaction for a lot of people is that it's bad. Uh, it's bad because they are bringing in a level of competition that is uh, unfamiliar. They are putting pressure on suppliers and producers so that it's difficult then for local businesses to invest because they're always competing against these low prices, as you talked about the, the question of inferior quality of products. Now, in Ghana, there's another wrinkle to all of this, and that is the the, the the constant bad headlines over the past, say, five, six, seven years, for almost as long as Kobus and I have been doing this podcast, there has been a struggle that the, that the Ghanaian government has had with illegal Chinese gold mining in Ghana. And so all of this together creates this negative perception about the Chinese presence, the merchant presence in, in Ghana. And I'm wondering when you, when you did your research and you talked about how there were people benefiting, there were consumers who were benefiting, there was a more favorable view in some quarters. Uh, did it surprise you or did it reaffirm your views that maybe this is not a net good for, uh, for, for Ghana to have so many Chinese present there? I, I was surprised that some people express positive sentiment, I have to be honest, because I have lived within these trading spaces for some time back when I was doing my undergrad in Ghana. And so, I mean, I even though I was living with this within, I mean, I used to go to these trading communities, I didn't actually know that Nowadays, I mean, all the small tabletops or small, small shops that are all trading products are only coming up just because of the Chinese presence. So initially, the, now the, due to the Chinese presence, the trading spaces are relatively busier than they used to. 
So now you have more people trooping into the trading spaces, which averagely increases the number of people who are buying goods from merchants within those trading spaces. And then, then there's the other question of the landlords, people who own the buildings that rent out shops to the Chinese. Due to, I mean, the increasing concentration of the Chinese, rent, rent prices are increasing. So the landlords would be happy. And for people who are selling goods, not, not conventionally sold by the Chinese, some other way that perhaps is not electronics or it's not shoes, so maybe plumbing equipment or building, building materials, they are happy by the Chinese presence because the Chinese presence makes the trading spaces busier. So when, once people are trooping into the area, then, I mean, they would also have access to some market. They can, they can trade, they can sell their goods. And then the matter of indirect jobs have most often done not what I found out when I interviewed some experts, some experts, they most often do not discount the issue as if it's not, um, they sometimes like to say it's not sustainable. But the numbers that you would see in terms of those hawking on the street, those sitting right in front of shops and selling, they are quite huge, substantial. Imagine if all these people actually do not have any source of income. I mean, one interview cited the instance, I mean, she, she said, I mean, just imagine these people could be involved in social vices. So if due to the Chinese presence, they can contribute some money, get one box of shoes and be able to sell to get some income, then that's fine enough. Um, how, to which extent is all of this um, complexity being reflected in the public debate around migration, especially Chinese migration in Ghana? So, you know, to which extent is, is that debate completely taken over by the idea of unfair competition? And to which extent is all of these other, like, indirect ways that it is changing the system um, also actually being discussed in, 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 the public, in the public space? Yeah, if, if you look at the media space, the, the binary as to whether is good or bad is still there but like uh, eric was saying due to the galamse activities the illegal mining we call it in ghana galamse uh, that's uh, most of uh, you found i mean substantial chinese presence in, involved in those illegal mining activities it tends to dominate i mean the issues about chinese migrants so it, it turns out that even when the chinese government is given what's one of our uh, my what's one of my uh, one point my paper raised was that you know, when Chinese government is giving loans, doing good stuff for Ghana, quote-unquote, that should ordinarily also have some positive impact on the media space, so people should see the Chinese in a positive life, light. But due to those illegal migrants, and then the power of the Ghana Union of Traders Association, that is also trying to protect Ghanaian trader interests, then most often than not, the good sides, the complexities are not revealed. I mean, so the narrative tends to be always that the Chinese migrants are coming with too much competition. And then there's also a GIPC Act that regulates, I mean, migrants or foreigners, I mean, investment activities in the trading sector. And what I found out or what we found out with the Act was that the Act was not a little, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous as to the legality of whether these people could trade in the spaces that they were trading. And that legality arises as to whether those spaces are classified as markets, as a market or not. Because the act was open-ended. The modern act, the 2013 act, did not, I mean, say, um, uh, define a market as being constituted either by customary authority or by the government. And to come to the assessment as to when a chief can decide to make an area a market is questionable in the first place. 
And moreover, if the immigrant or the foreigner is able to provide, I think, a minimum of one million dollars, the person is allowed to engage in retail trade. So there is this complexity as to whether what as to whether the Chinese presence in those trading spaces is actually legal or not, and as to whether they are trading in smaller quantities is legal or not. So most often than not, Guta or the people who are not happy with the Chinese presence all only take the versions, I mean, those provisions in the Act that states bluntly that these spaces are reserved for trading area, um, reserved for Ghanaian traders, and largely ignoring the the interpretation of those provisions of the Act when you subject it to much scrutiny. Support for this podcast comes from the African Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Well, let's dive into the legality question because I think that's super interesting because in the gold mining space, uh, it was determined that most of the gold miners or a significant portion of them were not legal. And I was actually surprised that, uh, you know, I've, I've read a statistic today that 90% of the gold miners, the Chinese gold miners, came from actually one county, the same county, Shangling County in the southern province of Guangxi. So there was this real tight bond that they had, but their immigration status was questionable and there's been a number of high-profile deportations. So, you know, in your research when you were in the Central Business District, uh, did you find out if there was a similar pattern in the commercial space? That is, were they legal? Uh, did they have the right papers to be there? Yeah, some Ghanaian traders, I mean, some interviewees did mention that occasionally there are arrests of Chinese merchants in the trading spaces. As to the reasons, I'm not really sure, but I, I, I encountered another master thesis from a student from the University of Ghana who did mention that some of the merchants, sometimes they overstay their visas, but it's not an issue that has dominated, I mean, the trading spaces. I mean, the question as to whether they are illegal Chinese migrants, it's mostly, mostly in the mining sector in, uh, in Ghana. Um, though, and then with the, even with the arrest, it was because due to the Guta push at the Ghana Union of Traders Association, then, I mean, uh, uh, the government set up a tax force, which is, I don't think it's operating now, that was in the past, where they used to apply, I mean, monitor the trading spaces to ensure whether these people were paying their taxes as they're supposed to, whether they had registered their companies. Because, I mean, one thing that also came up was that the Chinese merchants, for instance, would register with the GIPC, that they are actually coming to establish a manufacturing company with an address that is not within the central business district, but they end up using the license within the central business district to sell goods. So the tax force also clamped down on some of these activities. So there are used uh, multiple reasons to prevent or to sanction um, Chinese uh, trading activities in those trading spaces or in the contentious spaces where the Ghanaians find a problem with the Chinese merchants. How do you foresee this this situation going into the future? You know, kind of as Eric mentioned right at the top, um, some research in places like South Africa, has, we we've seen that some of these small um, small business 
owners um, from China and particularly traders like, and small retailers from China, some of them go back to China, you know, because because it's difficult for them to keep making a living in, in, in Africa. Um, do you foresee them becoming a kind of a permanent fixture uh, in the Ghanaian economy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for the Ghanaian case, I, I, can, I reckon they could be. Uh, what would prevent the tensions that ordinarily continue to uh, arise whenever Guta wants to act or, or feels like it has to protect Ghanaian interests. I think it's for the government to be clarify what the law says as to whether those trading spaces are indeed markets, which they could do perhaps by referring to some of the older acts, because in some of the older acts regulating investments in Ghana, the definitions as to what a market was was quite clear. And then the way the modern act was also made, the 2013 act was, I mean, because the Chinese want to, re I mean, foreigners would want to retail, then you would have to take a bit more employees than the Ghanaian would, and then your capital would also have to be huge. So, and given the history of the Indians and the Lebanese having traded in Ghana for such a long time, and there has never been a question as to, there has not been an uproar from Ghanaian traders as to the Indian presence, the Lebanese presence, I could foresee the Chinese could could stay if if the government clarifies the laws and then both Ghanaian traders and Chinese traders and have a good understanding of uh, the spaces they are supposed to be in and those that they are not supposed to be in and how they ought to sell their goods because that's where the confusion arises from and that's where even if Guta pushes the government to kick the Chinese out the government might not actually have the right to do that because as to whether the Guta demands it's legitimate or not, it's another question. And then the other thing too was the integration. What I found out, for instance, when I come uh, in another study, we compared with the Indians and the Lebanese and then the Nigerians. So there were some Ghanaian traders that really had issues with Nigerian merchants as well. Because the Nigerian merchants were also retailing just like the Ghanaians do. And that is what the Ghanaian traders do not want. But for the Indians and Lebanese, they were dispersed, mostly. Indian traders and Lebanese traders were all dispersed, were not concentrated in particular spaces. That, I mean, attract lots of Ghanaians just coming to those spaces just because they want to come and buy Indian goods or Lebanese goods. They are spread geographically. And then the Lebanese have also been in Ghana for a long time, married Ghanaians. Some of them have Ghanaian documentations. So are well integrated. That case could not be made for the Chinese, which is a bit a bit close enough to work and could be described as not very integrated in the Ghanaian society compared to the Nigerians, Lebanese and Indians, for instance. So if policies could be put in place to ensure they are actually integrated and then clarifying what the rules are as far as trading is concerned in those spaces, I could foresee them being a permanent part of Ghana, I mean, having a fixture in the, in the trading space. Well, to be fair to the Chinese on that front, uh, the, the Indians, Nigerians, and Lebanese have been in Ghana, I presume, for much, much longer than the Chinese. Uh, so it, that assimilation takes time, generations. We're really still in the first and second generation of the Chinese arrival in places like Ghana. So we need to see two or three more. So it's not they're not apples to apples in that sense. Let's close our discussion. Uh, you being the the great scholar that you are, you were very well balanced. You gave really both sides, whether it's both a positive and a negative, equal weight. And you really walk away from your paper, which I do recommend people read, uh, you know, with the sense that it is more confusing than I think the narrative on the outside is that it's all bad. Uh, but I didn't get a sense of what you really think. And so I'd like to hear, you know, do you think net net 
that the presence of the Chinese merchants is good for Ghana? Or do you think that it needs to be regulated and it's really something that needs to be brought under control because ultimately it's not very good? Where do you come down after doing the research that you did? I wouldn't say it's ultimately not good. It is good in some respects. If you look at the indirect jobs, you look at the cheaper goods, I mean, but the regulation is necessary. The regulation is necessary. And the regulation could be made in such a way that it's a win-win situation. And then the Ghanaian traders or customers could actually benefit from the Chinese presence. So the regulation is key such that, I mean, customers can still have access to the cheap Chinese goods. Ghanaian traders in those trading spaces still could be happy. I wouldn't recommend that the Chinese be kicked out because the impact arising from their presence due to the cheap goods and then the indirect job, it's indirect jobs is substantial. So our, uh, it's more of government streamlining the activities and making sure that the rules are clear. Kweku Denkwa is a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Adelaide in Australia. He's done some fascinating research on the presence of Chinese merchants and entrepreneurial migrants in Ghana, wrote a great paper uh, that I in the, in the Journal of Modern African Studies, and he wrote it with Marco Valenta on the socioeconomic impacts uh, of in Ghanaian trader attitudes towards Chinese merchants. Uh, I'll put a link onto it. Y- you know, here we are back in academic land where you can't download it, you can't copy it, you can't buy it. You 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 know, it's just crazy, Kobus, how you academics make it so difficult for people to read your stuff. Hey, it's not but, the academics who do it. I blame, you know, and it just it's annoys the, me to no end that corrupt academic a lot of public money goes into supporting this research, and yet we can't read it. So that's another show, another time. But nonetheless, I have a link for you that I'll share uh, in the show notes for this uh, this most excellent paper. It's a great discussion to have. Uh, Kweku, thank you so much for joining us. I know you are on Twitter, so if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and what your research endeavors are, what's the best way to get a hold of you there? Uh, if you just Google my name, Kweku Opoku Dankwa, I mean, it should lead you to my research profile and you can find my Twitter link from there. But I would, let me just mention my Twitter handle for, so it's K-W-A-K-U underscore O underscore D-A-N-K-W-A-H. And we'll, of course, put that in the show notes as well. Best of luck with the rest of your PhD program, and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Sure. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Kobus, I think the most important part of the discussion, and fortunately we didn't have time to talk about it, is not what the role of the Chinese are, or we talked about the Lebanese or Indians or Nigerians, who again are doing something to Ghana. But instead, it's the governance question. And this is something that he touched on a little bit from time to time in terms of enforcement, in whether they these traders are legal, is there the issue of corruption? And, and really, this is up to local Ghanaian government you know, authorities and governments throughout Africa to enforce their own immigration standards, to enforce their own business regulations. And that is the way to manage this process. And instead of a lot of people complaining about the presence of Chinese migrants, the pressure instead probably should be put upon the government. I suppose. I mean, yeah, I can definitely see that. And, and you know, he also made the point that that governance and, you know, kind of government streamlining of the system would be, would be very useful. At the same time, I also tend to wonder about what, how, how kind of commercial competition is 
discussed in 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 these environments you know because in in some places um you know i think of of a place like china for example you know the idea that competition is incredibly cutthroat that 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 is in the first place that's just a reality that everyone accepts um and then also that tends to be very good for economic development right kind of because it quickly leads to the kind of business diversification and i mean he himself has shown that you know when when the the chinese show up then that tends to in the long term lead to other places that didn't have trade trading action to actually develop new markets or new shops kind of showing up in in new in areas that didn't used to have shops um, um, you know, so so you can see that kind of the, the competition kind of kicking off a certain kinds of kind of economic development, um, but it seems like in 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 parts in some African countries that is not how competition is seen. You know, and that there's this kind of assumption that there should be that competition should be maintained at a certain level, um, and then and and you know when it goes beyond that level, then that is a problem. Then the government needs to step in. So so it seems to me that there's a kind of a, a different kind of way of thinking about how how this kind of retail economy works that differs from country to country. Well, that all depends, of course, who you're talking to. If you're talking to producers who oftentimes have the ear of government, that's what they will think. Limit the amount of competition so that they can maintain prices at a higher rate. But if you're talking to consumers, especially those who have limited disposable income and buying power does not go very far, uh, in that case, then the markets filled with low-cost Chinese goods are a net positive. And so I think in some ways that speaks to a little bit of the complexity of this issue that I think too often outside observers or even African critics, when they look at the presence of the Chinese, they will say they will take that side of the producers uh, and not necessarily focus as much on the consumer who benefits enormously from having lower cost phones, lower cost clothes and all the different things that the Chinese make. Now, the one point that he brought up in his paper and we touched on it very uh, quickly was the counterfeit and also the low quality goods. And really, that is just, that's annoying, and that is frustrating. And so when people are spending what little money they have to buy things that then break down or are not good or fake, uh, it's understandable that people are angry. Yeah, no, that's completely understandable. But, you know, for there, again, it becomes an issue of of a lack of governance, right? Kind of because in, in, other, in other countries, you know, like product specifications, that, that those tend to be, you know, done by government agencies. Um, you know, so, so here, here the, the, the buyers are so much more, um, so much more vulnerable, um, because they don't know, you know, they, they, they have no way of, of, of certifying what they're buying being actually, you know, kind of of a certain quality. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it raises so many questions, again, about what the role of the government is. And then also, for me, um, it raises also questions about what the, the quality of the, uh, of the other products in the market is. You know, so, so to which extent, like, what, what really the, the, the rate of breakdown of, of, a, of a product out of, like, one out of 100 products um, is in, you know, comparatively between Chinese-made and non-Chinese-made, um, and whether the, the non-Chinese-made are Ghanaian or whether they come from elsewhere. There's also so many kind of complicated questions that start coming up once you start unpacking these, these, these relationships. So the issue of Chinese traders and merchants is not something that's unique to Ghana. It's certainly not something that's unique to Africa. This is actually a worldwide phenomenon. And I come from the United States and in California, and the presence of Chinese merchants in low-income communities brings up a lot of the same questions. Are they hiring locals? Are they providing good quality service? Are the products priced accordingly and fair? Are they putting too much pressure on producers? 
and suppliers and whatnot. And so it's fascinating to see that these are in some ways unique to Africa, but in many ways, not at all. And so we would love to hear from you. What do you think of the Chinese traders and merchants in your community? Uh, are they bringing a net positive? Are they helping business? Are they facilitating commerce in ways that uh, that Kwaku talked about? Or are they causing problems? And it's really, I don't mean to sound, make it sound like an us and them kind of thing, but it is an interesting discussion to have. Uh, and how is there, are there some models out there in terms of regulating uh, these types of businesses, not just from Chinese, but all immigrants that come in? And immigration, of course, is a very, very sensitive issue in, in all the, in many countries, uh, most countries, I would say, around the world. And so this touches all also into political and into sociological and, uh, and other issues as well. So it's complicated and uh, one that we will do more to expand and explore beyond Ghana and look into other countries as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to Cobus and I, we would love to hear from you. We're getting emails now almost every day from, from various folks around the world who listen to the show. Uh, you can find me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com and Cobus, he's at cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. And we're getting back to emails usually within 24 hours. So let us know what you think. And if there's any questions or you have suggestions for future shows, it's a great way to reach out and talk to us. And also you can find us on our various social media links, which we'll have for you at the end of the program. So Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.